0: As you're taking your seat, you can go ahead and grab your Bible and open up to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. And um, I don't know about you guys, the beginning of December today, um, I hope you're starting to at least feel ready for Christmas. If you're not, by the afternoon you're going to because um, the weather is going to tip you off a little bit to that. Uh, we, we love getting ready for Christmas in our house, um, and um, one of the new additions to our house is, is a, a little sign um, that my wife has bought and placed on our mantle above our fireplace. And it's one of those signs, little countdown to Christmas signs. Anybody got those? Maybe you got a little whiteboard or a chalkboard. You kind of scratch out the number and you put a new number on there. Well, this is one of those kinds of signs. It's got these removable plates on it with numbers. And our kids love to wake up every morning and they beat us to the punch every morning. They are counting down the days till Christmas. Um, The thing I like about these kind of signs is that they're a constant reminder to us. They, they keep in front of us the sense of, of expectation and excitement, and there is a, a building sense of expectation and excitement that comes with every passing day that's leading up to Christmas. We feel this all around us as we see the signs of Christmas kind of put on display all over the place. That's really um, an important aspect of Christmas, Not just of the the kind of fun of the holiday, but of the spiritual excitement that is supposed to capture our hearts during this season. Our kids look forward, obviously, as we do to the fun, to the family, and of course to the presents, but there is a sense of, of known that we are excited about, the things we've done in the past, the memories that we've made, but also there's a sense of the unknown, the unexpected, the mystery of what awaits of this coming Christmas, when I was a kid, um, we didn't have a countdown sign, but we had those calendars, you know, those giant advent calendars. Maybe some of you still have them today, and you got to dig into that today. Nothing better as a kid to waking up to chocolate, right? And I remember the excitement of getting to peel off those little, you know, kind of perforated boxes, and, and part of the excitement was pulling the chocolate out. Not just the chocolate, but seeing how unlike the, that picture behind it, it actually looked. <laughs> But there was a growing sense of anticipation there too as each number was peeled off as we got closer to the day and finally leading towards Christmas morning. I never understood why those calendars were called Advent calendars as a kid. I didn't care. I just wanted the chocolate. And Advent is something that I think many of us, we've heard of, but we don't really kind of understand the, the history of of Advent, or even what the word itself means, Advent, as we've already kind of said this morning, is a season that's observed in many Christian churches, and it has been for centuries, for millennia. Um, Historically speaking, the first signs of Advent, kind of the first evidence that Advent was being celebrated was actually from the fourth century, and perhaps it even goes back further than that. It's a season that's celebrated because it is a time of expectant waiting of preparation for both the celebration of the nativity of Jesus at Christmas, but also, listen, the return of Jesus at his second coming. The term Advent actually comes from the Latin word Adventus, which actually means coming. It comes from, and it's the same kind of synonymous translation of the Greek word, of parousia, that's used in the New Testament, predominantly to describe the second coming of Jesus Christ. For Christians, the season of Advent anticipates The coming of Christ, and historically it's done so from three different perspectives. Christians have spoken of the three comings of Christ um, in the flesh in Bethlehem, in our hearts daily, and in glory at the end of time. And the season that we celebrate now, we begin to celebrate, has traditionally been done across four Sundays on the Christian calendar, and it offers to us the opportunity to share in the ancient longing for the coming of the Messiah But it also reminds us that we are called to stand alert and ready for the second coming of the Messiah. So over the next four Sundays, we're going to dive into the first couple chapters of the the book of Matthew. We're going to take a break from 1 Peter, and we're going to celebrate very intentionally the season of Advent. And we're going to do so along the lines of some important themes, some themes of longings um, that are presented to us through this Advent season, and Matthew meets us here in chapter 1 in this first area of of longing and of anticipation, this place of waiting and excitement, of expectation, and he meets us in this, this longing for hope. We've looked at this passage in previous years, and I want to take this passage again and look at it from some different angles And I want you to see the hope that it presents to God's people, and that was the very intention of Matthew beginning this letter the way he does. Let's just read this section together, beginning in chapter 1. It says this in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nishon, and Nishon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. There's a passage that you typically skip over and at least don't pay much attention to the names. Rightly so. It's a challenge just to try to make sure you're saying the names correctly. But here we see some important information being given to us. Again, Matthew is meeting the people of God in this longing for hope. You see, prior to the gospel of Matthew being written, there had been 400 years of silence since the last prophet of God had spoken to his people. There was an increasing sense of expectation and waiting and longing and Prior to this 400 years, God had spoken to the prophets and had given a whole bunch of information related to one who was going to come and rescue his people, the promised Messiah. They had been waiting and longing. They had placed their hope in what God said he would do. It's interesting as you come to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew spends very little time speaking about the specifics. When it comes to the birth of Jesus Christ, the birth of the Messiah, instead, his primary concern is on the fulfillment of the Scriptures. He is declaring to the people of God that the wait is over, that hope has come. Hope is to be found in Jesus Christ. And that's what we see as we walk through this passage together. I want you to notice this, that in Jesus we have first the hope of a new beginning. In a sense, that's exactly what Matthew wants us to take from the very first verse here. He is presenting to us a very new beginning. It's no mistake that Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. And there is important connections with the very first book of the Old Testament, the book of Genesis. We read the very first verse, and it says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Now, this is an introductory sentence that is loaded with important theological truth. It's going to set the trajectory, not just for the genealogy that follows, but for the rest of the book of Matthew. Matthew here introduces to us the main character of this A gospel that he has written, Jesus Christ, but he also is introducing to us and reminding us that Jesus Christ is the main character in all of human history, and he's identifying him as such right here in this very first verse. By this very first phrase, the book of the genealogy, Matthew is connecting us deeply back into the book of Genesis. In fact, this phrase could actually be translated more literally um, a book of the Genesis or the book of origins, which is the way you translate the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. It is the book of the beginning. It is the book of origins. It is the book of creation. And you see, what Matthew is wanting to do is make a theological connection for us. He's wanting us to understand a, a very specific thing here, very specifically the origin of Jesus Christ. Now, he's going to lay out for us the family line of Jesus. It's important for Matthew to connect the dots all the way back through human history. He wants us to see that Jesus comes from the right line, that Jesus really is the fulfillment of the promises of God. He's the one that they have been waiting for. He's the one that they've placed their hope in. They've set their hope upon the coming of this man. But before we get there, we have to back up And look at the important nuance that Matthew's Jewish audience would have actually quickly seen and understood. You see, this phrase, the book of the genealogy, it it actually intentionally echoes Genesis 2 and Genesis 5. And I want to put them up on the screen here, but I want you to to know this. The biblical authors did this frequently. Biblical authors would signal connections, important connections, I'm back to previous prophecies and previous writings in the Scriptures, and in doing so, what they're doing is reminding us that the Bible is not a set of disconnected stories, but instead it's a unified whole. The Bible is telling us one grand story, and it's unfolding before our very eyes So what Matthew is doing is telling us that something new has begun. He's connecting us back to the most new thing that he can think of, which is the creation of the world. And I want you to see these verses. Genesis 2 verse 4 says this, these are the generations. Um, In other words, this is the genealogy, or these are the origins of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Notice this connection as well to Genesis 5, verse 1, where he uses the same kind of language. And this is the, the, the connection. This is the book of the generations of Adam or the genealogy of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. So Matthew is, is reaching back into this context And I want you to notice that these two verses, they speak to the creation of the universe and the creation of humanity, the first human being, Adam. And you see what Matthew is wanting us to see is that with the coming of Jesus, there is a new creative work of God. And this new creative work of God is as profound as the first creative work of God. In fact, even more so. He's drawing us back to see, listen, in the same way that God created all things, right now is a moment in history where God is doing a powerful creative work. He's speaking new creation into human existence. There's a new beginning with Jesus Christ. We all understand that that sentiment, don't we? I I think most of us understand the sentiment of of desiring a new beginning, a fresh start, a clean slate. Every once in a while, maybe you talk to somebody and and you ask them, maybe you've even been asked, hey, do you have any regrets in your life? And, And people who want to put on a good front and save face with people, they'll often really quickly say, I've got no regrets in life. To say you have no regrets, though, is a statement, listen, that means you don't believe you need any grace, It means, in fact, that you don't really believe you've done much wrong. You don't need to start over. Now, I, I would say to you, I have a lot of regrets in my life. There's a lot of things I look back across my life that I'm ashamed of, that I'm embarrassed by. A lot of things I wish I had done differently. Now, it's very different to realize that we can have regrets, but also not live in those regrets. You see, the gospel reminds us that we don't have to stay in those places, but as Paul says, forgetting what lies behind because of Jesus Christ, we can strain forward to what lies ahead. But every one of us, as we look across our past, should have a sense that We need a a fresh start. We needed a clean slate at certain points in our lives. Maybe it was because of some really clear sin in our lives that had been dominating our lives. Maybe it was because of relational mistakes and hurt and pain that we had caused, wishing we had a do-over. We get that personally. Every one of us understands there are things that we wish we could fix from our past that went wrong. But what we understand personally is meant to be understood, listen, simply as a microcosm for a much bigger problem, for a problem with the entire world. We groan personally because we know things are not the way they should be, because we've made significant mistakes, because sin has damaged us, and because of sin, we have damaged others. But remember what Paul says in Romans 8, 22? he says this, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth, but here's what he says, until now. Paul is saying that the, the, the whole world has been groaning, knowing that something's wrong, knowing that something needs to be made right. It longs for a new beginning, for a fresh start, and Paul says what Paul Matthew is indicating here is that that new beginning and fresh start happens now with Jesus Christ. There's a powerful and profound new creative work of God that happens with the coming of Jesus. And you see, by hearkening back to the beginning, we're reminded that God created all things. Everything he created was good. Everything was right. Everything did what it was supposed to do because everything was under the perfect authority of the perfect creator. There was no sin, there was no rebellion against God, everything was in perfect alignment, in perfect order, but then man rebelled against God, and everything breaks, and sin spreads like gangrene, it spreads like an infectious disease, and everything it touches becomes infected and dies. And as we look at the Scriptures, we're reminded, and what Matthew in some sense is alluding to here is that sin doesn't just become a universal problem, it becomes a universe problem. It's not just something we all struggle with as human beings, it's something the whole universe is infected by. And there is a longing in our hearts, and there is a longing in the universe to be made right, there is a longing for the hope that God will come and fix what is broken, we all sense that we need a new beginning. And right here in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, we are told that the hope of a new beginning is found in the coming of Jesus. He has come to make all things right, to make all things new. Listen, it's no wonder that the Apostle Paul can write in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, and say that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new what? Creation. That's the hope that is being held out to all of humanity and to the entire universe. God's people have been promised this hope, the hope of a new beginning, which leads secondly to this the hope of a new life. This new beginning implies that there is to be new life. Where sin has done its greatest damage is in us, in human beings in alienating us from God, in breaking us, in causing spiritual death. Again, what we see happening here is that Matthew is signaling to us again. There's some subtle signaling going on, and he's already mentioned in the first verse two significant names. He said that this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. He's expecting that we're going to know that these two names are important. Matthew's primary audience, um, it's widely been recognized, is Jews. He's writing predominantly to Jews. So if you were a Jew in the first century and you're instantly drawn into to the history of the Jewish people, every faithful Jew would have known well the names of David and Abraham. The genealogies that were used in the scriptures were incredibly important. We, we gloss over them, but we miss some of the importance there. We, we miss... What exactly is, is being put on display? You see, genealogies were used to establish rank and power and status. Genealogies were incredibly important to demonstrate of the proper pedigree. They were like holding up your, your resume to people to show them that you were somebody of great importance. You come from a long line of important people. It's designed, this genealogy here, to make two names stand out, and those names are mentioned, like I said, in the very first verse. Abraham and David. You'll notice again that the names David and Abraham are mentioned um, again. Look at verse 2, the very first name, Abraham. And then look down at verse 6, where he goes off and describes David and the genealogy that flows from him. Now, if you miss these two names, then you miss the entire point of this genealogy. You miss seeing all that Matthew and the Spirit of God wants to point our hearts towards. So what's so important about these two men? Well, again, if you're a faithful Jew, you know the history. You're so steeped in the Old Testament Scriptures, you understand instinctively that God had made two very important promises to these men. In fact, they were greater than promises. They were known as covenants. The covenants form the backbone of the storyline of Scripture, and we are familiar with what God says to Abraham and David in the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants. The idea here is that there was hope given that new life would come through a lineage, a line, be leading to one central figure, Jesus Christ. So the hope that we have is first supposed to be grounded in the promises of God. Notice that first. It's grounded in the promises of God. Now, The Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant are incredibly important. I want to put them on the screen behind you. First, the Abrahamic covenant is seen in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. It's on the screen behind me. It says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, one word should stand out above all others there. It's mentioned a number of times. Bless, bless, bless. Now, that is, listen, that is, is incredibly important because up to this point in the book of Genesis, you want to know what's been unfolding for the people on the earth? The curse. The curse of sin from Genesis chapter three has been leveled against humanity and, and everything is falling apart and unraveling. Chaos has infected the earth. It's so wicked that God destroys the earth with a flood. And right before Genesis chapter 12 is Genesis chapter 11, right? Where the Tower of Babel, where the people of God try to stand up against God, try to rebel against his authority. And you see God curses them again and scatters them across the earth. And now, now hope is given with the promise that God makes to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Rather than curse, I promise you blessing again. He pulls Abraham aside from all the nations, and he says to you, I'm gonna make you a great nation. From this nation is going to come blessing and there will be a promised seed who comes from you and it will be through him that this blessing flows. It's interesting that Paul actually calls this promise, this covenant made to Abraham in a broad sense the gospel in Galatians 3 verse 8. Over time with further revelation, God made this gospel promise even more specific by making a promise to David um, the first king of Israel, listen to what he says in Second Samuel 7 um, verses 12 and 13. This is known as the Davidic covenant. It says this, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so you see the people of God were waiting for the one who is going to bring about this blessing because of the promise of God, and the one who was going to be a king who would rule in righteousness and whose kingdom would see no end. So we see first again the call that the hope of a new life is grounded in the promise of God. Should be up, there it is, grounded in the promise of God. Matthew is showing us that Jesus, listen, can trace his lineage all the way back to David and ultimately back to Abraham because he wants us to know the fulfillment of both of these promises if found in Jesus Christ. Both of these promises relate to the promise of new life. A reversal of the curse that brought about death and alienation from God And here we're told that there's going to be no more curse but blessing for the world. There's going to be no more tyranny of sin, no more oppression from wickedness, but there will be a righteous king and a kingdom of glory. Matthew wants to remind us that God is a promise-keeping God, that that is the hope that we have today. Christian hope is built upon the foundation of the faithfulness of God, which is grounded in the promise of God. And that means... That hope is secondly, listen, offered to those who are far from God. See, all of these promises relate to this reality that every one of us, because of sin, is far from God. Not one of us is close to God. Not one of us is good enough to stand in the presence of God. Not one of us has the required righteousness in our lives to be accepted by God. It places all of humanity far off. That's the language that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 2. Far off from God. Now, this genealogy is carefully arranged into three groups of 14 names each. But here's what you need to know about that. It's it's not intended to be a comprehensive or an exhaustive genealogy. He's not naming every single person. Rather, this genealogy is highly selective. Now, again, in in ancient times, um, genealogies were meant to legitimize your place in the community. It was the, the resume to prove your worth and value, you'd prove your bloodline, you'd establish your rank, your power, and your status, right? You'd be wanting to communicate to people that you come from a a long line of of very important um, very powerful and, and very respectable people. It was so important that in the ancient world, it was a common practice to actually doctor your genealogy, to doctor that list. You'd know, you you'd strike off all the people that were in there that maybe were disreputable, right? Like, like you, if you're looking at your family tree, maybe you don't include your creepy uncle, right? You're like, ah, oh, we think he's part of the family, but really, don't worry about him. But you see, when you look at the genealogy of Jesus, it shouldn't be the respectable people that jump off the list to you. What's so shocking about the genealogy that Matthew lays out for us here is not who he takes out, but who he leaves in. One author said that there are more lessons than people on this list. And it's fascinating, and we can't go through everybody, but there are some intentional people that are being highlighted here that we need to really quickly look at, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. Let me just highlight a few. Um, For one thing, um, look at the four women that he mentions on this list. You'll notice there in verse 2, he says um, Tamar. In verse 5, he says Rahab, and then he says Ruth in verse 5. And then he says um, in verse 6, the wife of Uriah, who we know to be Bathsheba. Now, the fact that he includes women in this genealogy is remarkable. This is an uncommon, in fact, it's virtually unheard of in the ancient world. You didn't include women in their genealogy. It was a deeply patriarchal society, in many ways, sinfully so. Women were devalued in this culture. They were often mistreated. In both Greek and Jewish culture, women had no legal rights. They certainly didn't have the standing of a man in the culture, A woman could not inherit property or give testimony in a court of law. She was completely under her husband's power. Um, It's recorded that Jewish men thanked God each day that they were not created as a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. And yet, here's the remarkable thing. Here are four women being listed in the genealogy of Jesus. See, why, why was Matthew including them in this genealogy well part of the reason part of the reason is to set up for the controversial circumstances surrounding the birth of Jesus okay do you remember Jesus was mocked um, because of, of the scandalous circumstances of his birth right you you have an unwed mother I and mean, again this you think that's inappropriate in our culture back in the ancient world this was devastating And so part of what Matthew is doing, he's preparing us for the birth story of Jesus and and for the scandalous reality of how Jesus, um, humanly speaking, came into existence. And what he wants us to see is, listen, listen, scandal and difficult circumstances have always been a part of how God is going to bring the Messiah into existence. But this is really getting to the heart of hope. The hope of new life for those who are utterly hopeless, for those who had no standing, for those who had no value, for those who were weak and oftentimes despised. You see, if we just do a quick survey of each of these women, one of the things we see is that these women were deeply flawed, they were sinners, some of them were foreigners, which is significant in the Jewish worldview, but all of them, all of them were at one point in their life deeply hopeless. And God met them in their circumstances, and he gave them the hope of new life. Take Tamar for existence. Tamar marries um, two wicked men, and both of them die. She's childless, which again is devastating in the ancient world. It's a sign of curse, not blessing, um, to be barren in the ancient world. She's lied to by her father-in-law who promises to give her his next son in line, the cultural practice, his next, next son in line for her to be able to bear children and for her to have a husband and be cared for and protected in that culture. Time goes on and it's very clear that her father-in-law has no intention of fulfilling that promise. And so she takes matters into her own hands. She disguises herself, hides herself as a prostitute and seduces her father-in-law. She sleeps with him and gets pregnant by him. And again, by Jewish law, to commit adultery and to be pregnant at a wedlock meant that it was punishable by death. And so her father-in-law hears about it and he wants to hold her to the standard of the law. Meanwhile, he's unwilling to hold himself to the standard of the law. she's being treated so unfairly. She has no hope already. Her life seems to be unraveling. And all of a sudden, when she's condemned to death by her father-in-law, she reveals that she was the prostitute who he had slept with. And he is convicted. He's cut to the, the core of his heart. And rather than being put to death, she is actually honored and she actually, the one who is hopeless, finds hope again. Rahab, a, an actual prostitute in the city of Jericho who houses the two spies um, that, that, that were sent in to scope out the land to prepare um, to raid the city She's a part of the enemy of God, the people who are God's enemies. And, and here she is. She hides the the the, the 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 spies, excuse me, that come from God's people, and her life is spared. She is hopeless. Her life is about to be destroyed. She would be in ruins like the rest of her people. But God looks upon her and he gives her hope in the midst of her hopelessness. Ruth is a Moabite woman. The Moabites could trace their lineage all the way back to incestuous Lot at the the beginning of Genesis. Moabites themselves, according to the book of Numbers in Numbers chapter 23, were actually excluded from Israel's assembly. There was a special hit out on them. They weren't allowed in Israel's assembly because they had refused to give to Israel food and drink after they had left Egypt. They treated them harshly, and so God cursed them. Ruth is widowed. She follows her mother-in-law, Naomi, back to Israel, hopeless uh, in the worldly perspective, world's eyes. She's an outcast already, and this outcast becomes a beggar, and she is graciously taken in by a man named Boaz, who becomes her kinsman redeemer. This woman who is hopeless finds hope because of God and His kindness towards her. And then you have Uriah's wife. A constant reminder, not using the name Bathsheba. Can you think about that? The the fact that she is called Uriah's wife is a constant reminder of the scandal surrounding her relationship with David. This is a woman who was married to another man. She was likely a foreigner herself. And she is taken by David Commits adultery with her. And by the way, part of the point here is that she was not innocent in the matter. Both David and Bathsheba committed adultery, which again was punishable by death in the ancient world. You see, she was a hopeless woman. She could have received the brunt of punishment and the consequences for the sin. But in God's kindness, not only is she spared, she would have a son named Solomon through whom the royal line would be traced. You see, these are the women introduced into the genealogy that prepare us for the coming of Jesus. So why exactly did he choose him? Well, as one commentator has said, there is no pattern of righteousness in the lineage of Jesus. You look at the line of Jesus and you don't see righteousness. You don't see a bunch of good people. You don't see a bunch of people who are worthy in the world's eyes. Jesus comes from a bunch of sinners, and as you look at this list, it's interesting, I, I, I don't just mean Tamar and Rahab, look at the list of wicked kings who are here, for example, Rehoboam, Abijah, and Ahaz, I mean you just read through the Old Testament, just see how wicked these men are, the idolatrousness of these individuals, these kings, how they rebelled against God, how they hated God, you can look at the so-called righteousness of, of men like Abraham, who lied multiple times to protect his own skin, or Judah, whose idea it was to sell his brother Joseph into slavery. What a good guy. Or David. Right? We've Adultery and murder. It doesn't get much worse than that. What about Solomon? Polygamy and idolatry. Even good Hezekiah with his pride in being so good. You thought your family tree was a mess. It's as if Matthew puts a criminal lineup before us. It's a list of, of damaged goods. Those who are damaged and those who have done great damage. And you see, part of the point here is that Jesus... He comes from a bunch of sinners because Jesus comes for a bunch of sinners. He comes for those who are far off, and he comes to bring them near. You see, the the, the reminder here is that God has not written off humanity. Those who should be hopeless can actually find hope in Jesus Christ. It's a reminder, listen, that Jesus came... Um, Not for the healthy, but for the sick. He didn't come for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. Like Matthew, who was a tax collector, despised because of his trade in the Jewish world. Or Rahab, the prostitute. Or Judah, the hypocrite. Or David, the murderer and adulterer. And I, I just, I want you to hear this. This is good news for all of humanity because every one of us fits into this broad bucket of being sinners needing the grace of God. Every one of us is far off because of our sin, but God comes to give us hope. Maybe you've walked in here today and, and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ and what I hear frequently from unbelievers who know they're sinners is this, I, I've, I've gone too far, there's no way that God could save me. If you knew what I have done, if you've seen my life, you've you would know that I could never be saved by God. And the message from Matthew this morning is this, there is no one who is too far off from the grace of God. God's grace comes after the worst of sinners. This is all of us, every single one of us in this room, right? Every one of us needs to be able to say like Paul, I am the chief of sinners, right? If you can't say that, you don't know your heart very well. And because you can say that, you can say this, that God is the chief of grace givers. And this is the hope that is held out to every one of us. And maybe you come in here today as a Christian and you're, you're thinking you're, you're doing really well as a Christian. And, and praise God if you are. You're walking in faithfulness. You're growing in godliness. Can I just remind you that the hope you have is not because of any righteousness of your own. It's only because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that leaves us with this final thought that Jesus gives us the hope of a new king. He gives us the hope of a new king. It's interesting how David is really um, centered upon in many ways in this genealogy. The idea of kingship is emphasized throughout this passage. At the very end in verse 17, just notice what it says as David kind of concludes this passage. He summarizes it like this. He says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. You know, one of the promises that God made to Abraham was that, Um, not only would blessings flow to the nation, but God actually zeroed in on what this promise would look like. And he expands this. Look at what it says in Genesis 17, verse 6. And verse 16 says something similar. It's on the screen behind me. It says this, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations. Notice this, notice this. And kings shall come from you. And then speaking about Sarah, Abraham's wife, listen to what he says in verse 16 of chapter 7. He says, And I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. You see, when God speaks to Abraham and he promises blessings for the nations, he promises him land. In effect, what God is promising Abraham is a kingdom that is to come. He's telling him that there's going to be a kingdom that is going to come. That's the idea of land and borders and a people and a nation. It implies a new rulership, a new kingship, a new authority. And I think Abraham understood the implication of that promise combined with the promised seed that was going to come through him that would bring blessing to the whole earth. I think Abraham knew exactly what God was saying. There will be a king who comes from you and he will rule and reign on the earth. David is centered in upon here because David is the unfolding of that promise to Abraham. It's the the next kind of revelation about how this is going to happen. And so this was no surprise. Kings would come, yes, a king like David. David, the paradigmatic king, the one to whom they looked at and they realized one would be like. God promised that a son of David would rule on the throne of David and his rule would be an everlasting rule of righteousness that would have no end. This king would be unmatched in every regard. He would be unmatched in authority and in power and in glory. He would come to restore this broken universe. He would reorder with righteousness what had been disordered by sin. And as Matthew ties up the genealogies, he emphasizes in verse 17 the generations. It's really fascinating what he does here. He identifies three groups of 14. So, why would he do that? Well, we know this. What he's done is not haphazard, but it is incredibly intentional. There's a strategy behind what Matthew is doing here three groups of 14. And his purpose, listen, is theological, it's not statistical. He's highlighting essential turning points in the history of God's plan of redemption. God promises Abraham a land and a people, which points to this idea of kingdom. David rises to the throne, and then what we see is the kingship is lost as the people are sent off into the Babylonian exile. This is the low point of Israel's history, right? The place of hopelessness. Here they are, they're waiting for this Davidic king, and now they're off in exile punished for their sin, when are we going to see this king? You can see at the lowest point in their history, they would have had this longing, God, you promised, you said you were going to bring a king who was going to make all things right, who was going to rule and reign. Now we're in another kingdom. And now what Matthew is saying is that in the coming of Jesus, we have the true son of David. David. The kingship here reaches its appointed goal. He's here, Matthew's saying. The time of fulfillment has come. The 14 generations, by the way, is again very important. It's theological in nature, but the numbers are actually somewhat significant. Many commentators actually believe that the the numerical value here is incredibly significant. In ancient Judaism, it was practiced, a common practice among the, the rabbis. It's seen in lots of rabbinic literature there was a, a literary practice no, known as geometria. The letters in the Hebrew alphabet would correspond to certain numbers. So, for example, in the, the English alphabet, you'd have you know, A would be 1, B would be 2, and so on and so forth, all the way down the line. This was a common practice in the ancient world. There was kind of layers of meaning that they were trying to import. They were signaling different things, reminding us in different ways, nuancing things to just press the point in. It was like an exclamation point being put here. Well, in the Hebrew alphabet, you can kind of see where this is going, but guess guess what the numerical value of David is. It's 14. In fact, I'll put it on the screen behind you so you can see what it looks like here, Um, but the, the name of David in Hebrew is three Hebrew um, letters, consonants, sorry. Um, D, which equals four in the numerical value, W6, and again, D4, which totals up to 14. You can make of this what you will, but it is very likely that what Matthew is doing is signaling to us once more. In one more way, he's simply emphasizing for us the hope of a new king. He's saying to us in a, in a deeper, maybe more profound way, listen, the king has come. The king is here. The son of David. It's no wonder that the dominant emphasis of the gospel of Matthew throughout his entire letter is the kingdom of God. It's a powerful reminder that the only hope we have is found in a king who will come to conquer sin removing both its power and its penalty, reversing the curse of sin from the beginning. God doing what he promised to do, bringing blessing to the nations and making all things new, which is exactly what Jesus did at the cross. The coming of Jesus means the hope of a new life. It means the hope of a new beginning, which is found only in the hope of a new king, There has to be a king who comes to conquer our greatest enemy. There has to be a king who comes and makes the greatest payment for our sins. See, all of this points towards the final days of Jesus. It points us towards the cross. And what Matthew is ultimately drawing us into is the story of Jesus that will end with the king being crowned on the cross. The call from Matthew is to turn from your sin. The hope that you can have today is found um, not in any righteousness of your own, but in the righteousness that must be given to you. Matthew says to us, turn from your sin and embrace the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Place your hope in King Jesus. If today you're here and you've never done that, God is inviting you through his word and by his spirit to embrace the hope that can be found in King Jesus. You have a king who has come to set all things right, to make all things new, and he's beginning with humanity.